Hey guys, we're so excited to announce that BC The Beatles is now the official podcast of Abbey Road on the River. Taking place over Memorial Day weekend, right outside of Louisville, Kentucky, Abbey Road on the River is a five-day Beatles-inspired music festival with seven stages, 50 bands, and over 250 concerts. This year, the headliners include Little River Band, our friend Tommy James, The Circle, plus former Wings guitarist Lawrence Juber, and so many more. Not to mention, we'll be there too. And yes, we will. Big, big things are in store. Come hang out with us for this super fun Beatle-filled music weekend. Right now, you can go to AROTR.com, click tickets, and enter our code APPY at checkout. You'll get $30 off either a three-day or five-day ultimate ticket to ride pass, which includes access to all the concerts, access to the VIP tent at the main stage where you have a restroom, phone charging, and water refill station, which is everything, right? You'll have a free hotel shuttle and one of my favorite things about Abbey Road River entrance to the midnight shows at the Radisson Hotel on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So much fun. Plus, you can bring a guest 21 or under for free. You'll get a matching ticket. And there's so much more, guys. Really, it's it's fabulous. More details are to come. But in the meantime, visit AROTR.com for more information. Enter the code ABBY at checkout. Don't miss out. We'll see you there. See ya at Abbey Road on the River. Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And don't forget, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. We love to hear from you guys, and we love to talk Beatles. Hell yeah, we do. Obviously. I mean, we have this podcast, right? Yeah, whatever. Like, it's not evident, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you heard about Abbey Road on the River at the top of the show. Um, you heard about our code and what you can get, which is going to be so much fun. And please keep your eyes peeled on our socials and, you know, stay tuned for future episodes where we'll talk all about our plans. There's a lot, like we said, a lot in the works. We're so excited. We want you guys to come hang out with us uh, and have fun Beatle times. Things yeah, are getting super exciting in February. Mash those follow buttons. Follow us on social, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're everywhere. And a lot of you, welcome to the new followers. Will we get like 100 new followers Oh my God, this we week got alone? so many on Instagram. You guys are killing it. And it's just, yeah, it's so much fun over there. I love the community so much. The memes are killing me this week. But yeah, thank you so much if you're a new follower. If you're a, I don't want to say old follower, but if you you followed us for a while, thank you also. But yeah, feel free to give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. What did you say, Erica? Mash those buttons? Is that what the mash kids say? Mash those buttons. That's what the kids say. Yeah, <laughs> mash them. It reminds me of like a game show in like the 90s. Like, mash that button. I think it's like from button mashing, like in video games. Like there's just some games where all you do is like bang on the controller to like kill all the things. That makes sense, I guess. I wish there was like a, a mash button on my keyboard on my phone. Or I could just like pound it with my fist and it would like all the things. I mash my keyboard when I'm angry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different been there. Thing, That's bad. <laughs> Yeah, That's a whole other thing. Yes, exactly. Um, also coming up, besides Abbey Road and the River and all of our exciting things in February, we will be announcing our next Beatles Book Club book. So we're going to start that back up. We're super stoked. Yeah, and we have a bunch of exciting guests and a bunch of exciting topics on the horizon. So we'll be previewing some of that stuff there, too. We won't tell you who it is, but we have a surprise return guest who's a fan favorite. So stay tuned for that. Cannot coming wait. up. I know, me too. I'm so excited. But first, we have some listener mail. Yeah, Ooh. speaking of social media, you guys are awesome sending your comments, and we love your Beatles memes. And we got a couple of comments that we wanted to share. So this first one is in reference to our episode about Linda McCartney, number 13. So during the episode, we asked third-generation fans, in other words, those who were either really young or not even born when she was alive to tell us if the love for Linda is still going strong. We read a couple of the responses we've gotten so far, but we wanted to share this one from user I love Paul Mac on Instagram. They say, hey, 
I'm listening to your podcast episode about Linda, and I'm 19, so I want to share what I think about her. She was beautiful. I love her with all my heart, and in my head, it's as if she were still alive. I'm so sad Paul had to live through her death, but I'm glad he got to meet her. Without her, he wouldn't have been the same person he is today. And their children, too. Basically, the third-gen fans of the Beatles love her so, so, so much. We all do, really. And we hate Heather Mills more than Yoko. And by the way, I decided I'm going to call my future child Linda. Good choice. Oh, my God. I love Paul Mac. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. You're amazing. <laughs> yeah. She's so fabulous. This is great. I don't even know if we should talk about Heather Mills on the podcast. I guess let us know what you think. But it's funny. I wonder how common it is that like younger fans hate Heather Mills more than Yoko. Because obviously Heather Mills is a lot closer in the rear view mirror. I don't hate Yoko at all, but I, I do hate Heather Mills. So, I mean, those yeah. of us, I think, who grew up contemporary with Heather Mills, like, that divorce was killer. Oh, Jesus. man. She was we so sh- awful. <laughs> yeah, I would be so down to break down the divorce. I remember reading the entire transcript when it came out. Like, I remember I was in college, and I was at my job in the Residence Life office, and I was sitting at the computer just, like, reading the entire, like, I don't know, 200-page transcript. It was so good. <laughs> Oh, it was crazy. And then they kept they kept publishing all this stuff in the Daily Mail, like crazy tabloid stuff. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, it, it was like a tabloid shit show. It was like Heather dumping a pitcher of water on Paul's lawyer, Paul's lawyer's head, like all Jesus. that kind of stuff. So crazy. Anyway, Linda. Yes, but not Heather. <laughs> Linda. Not the anti-Heather. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's the thing. You, we don't have that to the kind of thing to say about Linda because that was not who she was. No, she was way too badass to do any of that kind of stuff. She was badass. Like She was this perfect combination of badass and yet super soft and feminine and caring. Yes, I'm so glad that that comes across to people who weren't contemporaneous with her. I remember growing up with her and thinking of her almost like like an aunt almost. Like she was seemed like somebody who would just be very nice and sweet and like she'd cook for you you know like I always thought about her like different than I thought about Paul like she just seemed like somebody who was so like like nice like somebody I really wanted I wanted to meet her almost more than I wanted to meet Paul actually I did want to meet her more than I wanted to meet Paul because she just seemed like somebody who would be so cool to talk to yeah totally but I also feel like she would be the type of mom or aunt that like would not like take shit like if you asked advice she would like give it to you straight it's like tough love almost or like just not candy coating things probably because she's a new yorker she's a new yorker and if you look at her kids i mean for growing up mccartney like they're ridiculously down to earth so she i think had a lot to do with that totally i think stella like just her spirit reminds me of a lot lot of linda like she seems very like you know just like kind of feisty and like very uh she doesn't really seem very filtered like i love that um obviously we know that Linda had a lot of strong opinions, which is lovely. I think she kind of like kept Paul sort of in his place too. Like they were just great foils. Obviously we talk about this more in our Linda episode, but yeah, she was wonderful. She was. Thank you. I love Paul Mack for continuing the Linda love. We love that so much. I know. Yes. And another social media question, comment, concern, complaint we got was about an episode that's near and dear to my heart. In September, we recorded a special, and then we did an addendum to that special about how to actually pronounce Brian Epstein's last name. And yes, it is Epstein. Okay. Uh, we've heard a lot of responses from you guys, but we wanted to share this one from at more underscore BRB underscore songs on Twitter. I wonder what BRB is. Hmm. Anyway, they say, thanks for treating the issue of the pronunciation of Brian's last name as important. As you say, it is, because it was important to him. It drives me nuts to hear people mispronounce it. IMO, any mystery was solved way back when First Jewish Visit came out, in which his PA not only tells a caller asking for his name that it's Epstein, but emphasizes Epstein again after the unobservant caller says Epstein. This all in clear earshot of Brian. I don't think you mentioned how the caller says it wrong and gets corrected, which I think adds considerable weight to Epstein as the appropriate pronunciation. I do agree that Brian's voice should be the last word. I just wish his voice hadn't trailed off just then. More BRB songs is talking about when he actually says his own name in U.S. Visit, but he says it very softly. And and to hear that, you can listen to the addendum to our episode. But thank you. 
for validating my craziness and wanting to set the record straight about Epstein. And yeah, I'm glad that people actually care and, and believe it was important because it was important to him. So that's really lovely. And please, yes. please, if you haven't heard that episode, listen to the addendum because it includes the entire original episode plus Brian saying his own name. And totally, totally agree about your point. His staff would not have corrected somebody if it was not important to Brian and they didn't all know what the name, how how his name should have sounded. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, and and all within earshot, as as you say, it's like, yeah, that's, Brian would have had no problem correcting them. He was not a guy to, like, let that stuff slide. Um, You know, his staff has talked over the years about how he was kind of hard to work for sometimes. He was very temperamental. And I don't think he would have let that shit fly. Obviously, it was important enough for him to have changed the pronunciation of his name. It just, it, yeah, it makes no sense. So, great points. I don't know if we did talk about how the caller gets corrected, but um, yeah, I do remember that now. So, great point. Another shock on the tally of why it's Epstein, because it is Epstein. Yes, and yes. anybody who you hear saying it the other way, no matter how fervently they say it, not true. Not true. Not true. You send them to us. You tell them that we'll take care of it. <laughs> If you see, if you hear somebody saying it the other way. Most yeah. definitely. By the way, can I just say how cool it is that these two comments are not even about the actual four Beatles? That yeah, the that's love, true. The, the wider Beatles universe and the the people, the Beatles adjacent people, the people that helped them, supported them, got them to where they are. That people in this day and age are still really thinking about them, and I think that's amazing and heartwarming. Oh my god. In that vein, I have a story. Maybe I should save it for my favorite Beatles thing of the, of the uh, episode. Maybe I will. But it kind of goes along with that uh, that kind of vein. But it deals with a first-generation fan who felt that way, like, in the moment. So, okay, I'll save it for my favorite Ooh, a Beatles teaser. Thing, stay yeah, tuned to the end, exactly. guys. <laughs> now you have to stay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I agree. This is great. Thank you guys again for your comments. Please, like, write to us. We love we love this stuff. Anything, any questions, anything you noticed, anything you want to discuss further, we will, we will keep the mailbag feature going the more we get. Twenty twenty is a full year of giant fiftieth anniversaries, like the anniversary of the breakup and the anniversary of Let It Be. Both very exciting and positive events. Yay. But (laughs) on a lighter note. Sarcasm. (laughs) Anyway, it also gives us a chance to kind of circle back to the beginning and celebrate 60th anniversary. The Beatles in 1960, the 60th anniversary, is a great thing to start with. And that's where we're going to start. Yeah. 1960, you know, at a quick glance, we were talking when we were writing this episode, it's like, we both sort of went into it uh, being like, oh, there's probably not that much, like 60, you know, it doesn't really come up that much in the Beatles story. But surprisingly, it, it actually is kind of important, um, you know, just to recap the last couple of years leading up to 1960. So John and Paul met 1957, but they didn't meet Brian or add Ringo formally as a Beatle till 61. So history sort of like glosses over this year. But it's really the year that kind of set everything for the next decade. You know, it really was the year where everything became poised to fall into place. I think the theme of 1960 was really a transition. It was the year that they came into their own. I mean, in the 50s, they were these like awkward teddy boys. They had unsure futures. Who knows what was going to happen? And in this year of 1960, they moved from these these unsure young boys to these self-assured, badass powerhouses in leather who managed to harness that sense of beetleness that we all know today in this short year. Yeah, and beetleness is a great word. And if you're curious to know a little bit more about that, check out our episode with Candy Leonard. She actually wrote a book called Beetleness about Beatles fans. But in this case, it's like, like, what do you think about in that period? It's them in their cavern leathers, as they call them becoming this like wild bunch of boys that Brian would discover the next year. I think this was a very important period for them. And not only did they refine their sound, they refined their look with the help of people they met there, including Astrid Karacher, who, yes, she definitely deserves her own episode, and their friend Klaus Foreman, who also deserves his own episode. Did we talk about Hamburg yet? I don't think we've talked about Hamburg at all. So, Allison, who were Astrid and Klaus? 
<laughs> okay, well, so Astrid, I love, so quick sidebar, I took German in high school and I chose Astrid as my name because of this. Anyway, oh. I love her. Astrid was a photographer in Hamburg, Germany, and the Beatles spent a big chunk of 1960 doing their first run of Hamburg shows. And not only did she really take the first official images of the band, we'll post some of those on our social. They're super well-known. You've seen them. They're iconic. But uh, she and her former boyfriend turned BFF, Klaus Mormon, who definitely needs his own episode because he shows up all along the way of the Beatles story. Those two really revolutionized their look because they had these short, bowl-cut hairstyles and they had existential looks where they dressed all in black in these like sleek outfits. And John would call them exes because of the existentialism. And Stuart Sutcliffe, who we'll get to in a second, uh, we have a whole episode about him, he was in the band during this period and he fell in love with Astrid and he stayed behind in Hamburg when, uh, when the Beatles went back to Liverpool and he quit the Beatles to be with her. So... That's so romantic. <laughs> it is romantic. And it's interesting, too, that not only that it was a turning point for him, but it was a turning point for the band. It, it was kind of a time where they went from their friends. And, you know, there's a story where they Stu was an artist and he won a, a painting contest. And John, you know, kind of cajoled him to use this hard-earned money he won his mm-hmm. painting to buy a bass to join his their band to be with them. But Stuart That's himself, right. he was never... A dedicated musician. He was doing it for the love of his friend. So when Stewart ended up making the choice to stay behind, they started really solidifying into the hardcore musicians, first with Pete, then with Ringo. Yeah. And I don't know if we've done an episode or we've talked about it at length. We should definitely talk about this, how Paul sort of rose throughout the years to becoming the leader of the Beatles, even though everybody perceives John to be It's such a great topic. Um, But I think this is where that begins because Paul and Stu were always, I mean, I don't know if Stu is really jealous of Paul or Paul and John's friendship, but I think Paul was always really jealous of John and Stu. So when Stu sort of stayed back in Germany and removed that competition for Paul to come into John's life and for them to solidify their connection. So that was a really important, obviously, event that happened. There's a lot of things I think we could talk about, about the relationship between Paul and Stu and John and Paul and Pete and John. There's some oh my gosh. interesting uh, so dynamics much. there. I know, which is ironic. I think a lot of what happens in 1960 needs its own episode because there's a lot. <laughs> it's very crazy. And I think one of the first things that we see, at least from the viewpoint of, of history, is that we get some of the first real recordings of these early Beatles. And the first first recording was when they recorded a record together, I think two years before that. And they did That'll Be the Day. And what was the other, what was on the other side of that? Was it In Spite of All the Danger? Yes, it was In Spite of All the Danger. Mm. But this was the first home recordings of the Beatles, which they did mostly in Paul's bathroom. I think there was another session that Astor did with them too, a little later in the year. I find these really interesting because for two things, The first is that it's one of these things where it's just ridiculous kismet that in 1960, we actually have a bathroom recording of the Beatles. Given the technology and the ability to do something like that and how hard it was to to record things, the number of early recordings we have of the Beatles, starting with that very, very muffled recording of the first time that Paul met John on that day when when he played with the Quarrymen, when John was playing with the Quarrymen. Starting from that, and then there's the fact that they were able to put their money together and make a little record together, a two-sided record the next year, and then they got a reel-to-reel player, and they just made a bunch of recordings. And I think that's really fascinating because it's surprising that you have it. I would I would imagine that the majority of bands playing in 1960 do not have audio evidence of their band, and we have it of the Beatles, even though they were there, the baby Beatles, we still have it. <laughs> Aw, baby Beatles. I know. Well, we need to talk about Paul's bathroom for a second, because if you remember in Carpool Karaoke, oh, when yeah. they go to Paul's house, he talks about recording in the bathroom and how the acoustics are great. And I think he actually like sits in his bathroom and like sings a little bit. So He does. He does. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So go back to yeah the Carpool Karaoke episode and um, you'll see Paul. And in the very first place, the Beatles uh, made some home recordings, I guess. <laughs> These home recordings are not, they're not amazing, but you really can hear what, you know, you can hear just the burgeoning of what is going to come. 
I would imagine that if they had made a recording in that bathroom a year later, you could really hear the difference that having gone to Hamburg later in that year would have made. Oh, yeah. That would have been amazing. They should have done that every year, like a like a family portrait, a yearly bathroom recording. And <laughs> also interesting, and, and we'll post this on the social because there's a like hour-long compilation on YouTube of all these these things. But some of the things that you hear, I mean, they did one after 909. They did I'll Follow the Sun. So they were already really confident in the ability to write and the ability to record those songs they wrote. That's so interesting because One, one After 909 shows up so many times throughout their career, even to the very end. Like, that's such a fascinating tune that they, they kept coming back to it like that. I don't think they formally recorded it for an album until like what let it be yeah they did not but it shows up on i think live at the bbc they do it there or something mm-hmm. like that coming into 1960 they were still the quarry men the band named after quarry bank high school where john and Stu went to school um they decided in early may to change their name to the silver beatles b-e-e-t-l-e-s and the first thing they do is they audition to support billy fury who was a big personality on Liverpool music scene. They have a big statue to him. If you go to Liverpool, it's down on Albert Dock. So they auditioned to support him as his band on tour, but they don't get the gig. But instead, they do get the gig to back Johnny Gentle on his tour of Scotland. And I I was like, wait, all my years of being a Beatles fan, I don't know who the hell Johnny Gentle is. So I looked it up. <laughs> and really, the most famous thing about him is that his backing band on this tour is the Beatles. Like, yes, (laughs) he even wrote a book about it. Yeah, that's all you need to know about Johnny Gentle, apparently. But on this tour, this is one of my favorite Beatles things. They adopt pseudonyms for some reason. They just decide to, like, change it up. So John Lennon becomes Long John, which Uh really there's, I guess, he was just like, this sounds great. Let's just do this. Um, Long John Silver, Silver Beatles, I could see it. Paul becomes Paul Ramon. Fun fact, this actually inspired the Ramones. This is where they got their name, is from Paul Ramon. Oh, how cool is that? That's crazy, right? It's like such a deep Beatles fact. And they were like, I the Ramones are such Beatle nerds. I love them so much. Maybe an episode about them is in store one day, too. Oh, we should definitely. Oh, yeah, should. I would love that. George Harrison becomes Carl Harrison. He adopts Carl Perkins' first name. Loved Carl Perkins. How cute is that? What a guitar nerd he was. Oh, I know. I know. I love his I love his Carl Perkins love. So sweet. Um, Stuart becomes Stuart DeStale after an abstract painter named Nicholas DeStale. And uh, actually, Stuart's works have been compared to his. So it was, it was apt and it was appropriately arty for Stu. Yeah. And then on drums, I don't think he had a cool nickname, but it was Tommy Moore. But he he quit the band shortly after the tour ends. Tommy Moore was was only there for a little bit. He was much older than the rest of the Beatles, and he had a day job, and he had a wife, and his wife did not like him being part of this band. No way, really? I can't believe yeah. it. <laughs> after Tommy Moore, they really did embark on one of the key milestones in the early Beatles career, which is that they hired Pete Best as the drummer for what was then known as the Silver Beatles. Hi, Pete. Enter Pete. Hello, Pete. One of the interesting things about Pete was that it really was this transition from a group of friends to a band, a group of musicians, because they basically hired him because he had a drum kit. Mm -hmm. And they they needed a drummer (laughs) to go to Hamburg when they were offered the Hamburg gig first, and they needed a drummer. So they needed to find somebody who could come on short notice and could drum and had a drum kit. And that's what they found. Yeah, he didn't suck too bad. So he kind of got the gig, uh, which is great. So they knew Pete because they sort of circled around the same friend groups and bands and especially at the Casbah Club, which uh, was run by uh, Pete's mother, Mona, who definitely needs her own episode because Mona is one of those very overlooked figures in not only Beatle history, but Liverpool uh, music history. Proprietor of the Casbah, very supportive. I mean, she would like go to bat for her son like nobody else like she i think she may have like told brian off or something after uh he fired pete but she was very very powerful um especially as a woman in that in that scene she was definitely a mama bear and she had her own club which is very interesting for a woman in liverpool in 1960 and the beatles were very much involved in that i mean they 
Hawk recounts how he and the other guys helped paint the ceilings and decorate it and make it what it was. Yeah. And if you go to the Casbah today, you can still see it. They have the painted ceiling and the walls and everything. It's all preserved, which is fucking great. I mean, there's so much of that. Obviously, the cavern's gone, the original cavern, all of that. But the Casbah is still pretty much exactly as it was when the Beatles played there. That's amazing. Yeah, right. And then soon after that, the Beatles start with the wordplay that so defined John Lennon and that defined their name. So from the silver Beatles like the bug on August 17th, so the rumor goes, they changed their name to just Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. And it's for two reasons from what we hear is that the first was that it was an interesting wordplay on beat and beat music. And I think Stu came up with that part of it with the alternate spelling yeah and and then it was also inspired by the beatles especially john's love of buddy holly who was buddy holly in the crickets love that i love buddy so i uh i approve john i approve of this and then around the same time mid-august they go to hamburg they embark on what it was a very arduous journey my god it was like a train to london boat to holland train or a boat to germany it's like when you think we can just hop on a plane and be somewhere in like five hours like it's five hours from new york to london it really puts into perspective how tiring and you know kind of treacherous and unpredictable this kind of trip would have been plus they had all their own gear and their their clothes and everything. I mean, they were carting this stuff around. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when they get to Hamburg, they already have a gig lined up for them at the Indra Club, and they end up playing there for 48 days. That seems so long. I don't think I realized before this episode how long they were at these clubs. That's what, like a month and a half, and sometimes multiple shows. This was not a nice place. They were. I think they were in like a, a closet next to the women's bathroom and they had to bathe in the sink because they didn't actually have a shower. They weren't exactly being put up with a, you know, a, a nice cushy rider at a five-star hotel. They were earning it hard. Then people started bitching about the noise at the Indra. I mean, what do you expect, guys? Come on. Um, so they <laughs> move over to the Kaiser Keller. Um, where they're there for 58 days. And this is where they uh, they learn from hair. I'm going to say this name wrong, Kirschmuller. I don't know. I, I took German. I don't, yeah. Um, but they, one of his uh, famous, infamous phrases to Beatle fans is to mock show, which directly translates into make show, but, um, you know, is his way of hurrying their asses on stage to play God knows how many shows per day, per night, and uh, entertain his guests. And Machau, they did. I think they really, really honed their performance skills. They already had ridiculous senses of humor, and they were funny, and they were irreverent. But playing all night on the influence of lots and lots of drugs and a lot of speed, I think they discovered how drugs influenced music for the first time during yep, these... Prellies. Uh, yeah, Prellies, Prelly Din, which is a form of speed which they got from both uh, Astrid's mother, who got a... Uh, back channel prescription from a pharmacist oh friend you knew, as well as from the bathroom <laughs> attendant at the club who was affectionately known as mama who had it in a big basket that she would just pass out to all of them i don't think i knew the thing about astrid's mom yeah giving them yeah, prellies yeah. Mm -hmm. shit cool mom yeah <laughs> don't do drugs <laughs> drugs are bad wow that's crazy and as the famous story goes, at, during this time, I don't know if it was Club Erica, maybe you know more about this, but uh, George loses his virginity to a prostitute. And um, apparently his bandmates were in the room. And uh, after it was over, they applauded him. That is that is how <laughs> so the story goes. <laughs> yeah. George was underage. He was only 17. And he... Lost his virginity there, yeah, and they they were proud of him. They were really proud of him. Oh my god, that's so funny. I think George himself tells a story in the anthology. Like it, he corroborates it. He just doesn't have any shame. Like whatever oh, yeah, the it fuck. Happens. Yeah, it's so <laughs> funny. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> moving on from the George losing his virginity, and we'll give him a little clap. Um, as we talked about, this is where we have some recording happening. Yay! And one of the things sort of a pre-telling of things to come. John, Paul, and George, they play on a backing track for a guy called Lou Walters, and he is in Roy Storm and the Hurricanes. 
And who is the drummer of Rory's Room and the Hurricanes at this time? Of course, it is Ringo. Ringo, this really tough guy. They were very afraid of him, which is very funny. Yeah, he was tough and super talented. And with the Hurricanes, who were known as the best band in Liverpool and preceded them at Hamburg. Mersey Beat wasn't around yet, but I think there was a poll taken in Liverpool around this time where Rory Storm was number one and the Beatles were number two. Yeah, so they were, yeah, they were the fan favorite. And so John Paul and George joined Ringo on this demo. And it's the first time that what would be the final lineup of the Beatles, they play together. The songs are Summertime and possibly Fever and September Song, which would be love. I love September Song so much. But you know what? There's no recordings that have survived, which ugh, it's still worse. <laughs> makes me so mad. <laughs> never give up, though. Never say never. You never know what's hidden in a bread basket or something in somebody's yeah. house. That's like our mantra, our mantra, mantra, wow, mantra here on the podcast. It's like, go look in your grandparents' junk drawers. There might be a tape in there of this know. session, <laughs> especially if your last name's Walters and uh, a relative was in a band in Liverpool in 1961 go find it i will give you you 18 dollars for it it's probably all i have but i will do it yeah (laughs) that's great i think that's that's worthy Uh (laughs) so that demo was in october and shortly thereafter things take a turn for the not as good for them as george (laughs) is deported for being underage apparently losing your virginity on german soil does not make you enough of a man to be able to stay if you're still 17 (laughs) i guess not And it was super duper bad timing because they'd just been courted to work at the much more prestigious top 10 club. Like this was a super upgrade from the Kaiser Keller. George talks about the, in the anthology about when he got deported, it literally took him 24 hours to get home. Because as we talked about, he's taking a train to a, a boat to a, another train and all this stuff. And he said he was almost broke by the time he finally got back to Liverpool. So, I mean, I can't imagine how defeated he felt um, and how freaking defeated the Beatles felt, you know, seeing George uh, get shipped off back home. I always think about Backbeat and uh, a couple of other Beatle biopics when they deport George being literally yanked off the stage and uh, sent back. I'm sure it was not that dramatic, but no less devastating. I wonder if it had something to do. I feel like it did, that they they were being courted by the top 10. They were going to move off from the Kaiser Keller. And I wonder if somebody just kind of notify the authorities. Ooh. I feel like there's I an intrigue. Wonder. That is that is very weird timing. You're right. Yeah, because mm. who the fuck cares if he's 17? Like why is this all of a sudden a thing? Yeah, I'm sure he's not the only 17-year-old musician. And he did sign a like contract. Playing. He'd been there for a while at that point. Who's who's finding this out now? That is oh, conspiracy. Yes. Well, luckily, other Beatles were still behind though to wreak havoc. And wreak havoc they did. (laughs) Yes. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out so well for them either. On November 30th of 1960, Paul and Pete are deported after uh, setting a fire with a condom nailed to the wall as a big fuck you to the living conditions they were being put up in. Well, Erica, that's one version of it. (laughs) So just to play devil's advocate, I like that story, too. But there are accounts that differ. Was it a rag? Was it a tapestry? Or, as the legend goes, a condom nailed to the wall. And I think Paul has even said, I mean, I don't think he's ever confirmed nor denied, but I feel like he hints to it being a condom. And people say it was because they just moved into these new digs because they were going to play the Top Ten Club. And they couldn't see. It was dark in the room. And so they're like, what can we set on fire? Which seems implausible and illogical. But these are the Beatles we're talking about, so who knows? And so they set something on fire on the wall, and apparently the fire wasn't even a big deal. It sort of burned itself out in, like, two seconds. But it was enough to get them arrested. So, you know, uh, I don't know. I stand on the the condom and the fuck you, but it just makes a good story. Well, I'm going to keep on the conspiracy theory train, and I'm just going <laughs> to say that I think that the fire was small, but somebody was pissed and they just wanted to keep getting these troublemakers out. That is, oh my gosh, you're like building a whole like secret history right here. I love conspiracy theories. This is great. Okay. Yeah, I'm into this. I'm into this. I didn't know we would go there, but I'm really happy with this. 
<laughs> oh my god well paul and pete soon follow george's lead and they get deported uh, bye-bye um and so i guess you know john is kind of hanging out back there with Stu. Stu's like dude i'm gonna stay here with my girlfriend like i'm sorry i'm quitting the beatles and cue many dramatic scenes and beatles biopics where john like fight to Stu and Stu's just like lol you simpleton I'm an artsy genius and you know I'm gonna stay here with my existential like smart friends and John sulks back to Liverpool it probably wasn't like that because they would hang out on subsequent Hamburg trips and all that but by early December John is back in Liverpool so we've got all the Beatles minus Stu back in Liverpool they're back and they're different this year of 1960 has changed them. They are not the same guys that were recording in Paul's bathroom in April. They are leather. They have this existential look. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, always uses the Beatles as an ex- as an example of how 10,000 hours of practice on average can make you an expert. And that's a very simplified way to say it, but he uses this example of how the Beatles were nonstop playing in that time in Hamburg. And in their first year, I mean, how many nights did they play? Eight hours a night. You know? mm, yeah. So they got a boot camp of training and they came back a totally different band in just a few short months. They were, in fact, so unrecognizable that on their first um, their first gig back, they were billed as direct from Hamburg. A lot of people in the audience thought they were actually a German import, not their Beatles. Mm. I find that their their second to last gig of the year on December 27th in Litherland Town Hall was the culmination of what 1960 was for the Beatles. And it was, in essence, the beginning of Beatlemania as we know it. The Beatles, just back from Hamburg with this new look, direct from Hamburg, as they say, the lineup was John, Paul, George, Pete. And former quarry man Chaz Newby filling in on bass since Stu had stayed behind. They were playing at Litherland Town Hall, a local venue, and actually both Johnny Guitar and Ringo Starr from Roy Storm and the Hurricane were in the audience that night, having themselves just gotten back from Hamburg. The story goes, and I find this such a very exciting story, is that the Beatles were there. They were actually a bit nervous having come back um, and playing their hometown after so many months of not being around. And their friend, friend of the band, Bob Wooler, whose legend looms large in Beatles history. Mm-hmm. Another episode we should do. Yes. <laughs> he was the DJ that night in Litherland Town Hall, and he advised the band that when he announced them, they should come on strong. And come on strong, they did. Especially Paul, who who actually misheard the cue a little bit, and he jumped the gun, and he ripped into his signature Long Tall Sally early, giving mm. these English audience this first taste, this first thrill of the orgasmic pull that would become Beatlemania. And according to primary accounts, the audience was at first... Totally stunned into silence. The bouncers kind of moved forward, prepping themselves for the inevitable fights that was going to happen. But there were no fights. Instead, the fans rushed the stage, screaming their faces off, dancing, and engulfed by that euphoria that 60 years later, we're still feeling. That's amazing. And I mean, what a song to start off with. And, you know, if you've ever seen like a Beatles tribute band do it, it's even exciting when it's not the real Beatles. I can't imagine seeing like a young, you know, fresh out of Hamburg, you know, Paul McCartney just like tearing into the song. I imagine like no matter what, you know, the audience has seen in the cavern or, you know, around the city at this time when Mersey Beat was coming alive. It's like that would have been like, holy shit. Like what is going on? I mean, I, I can't even imagine the the electricity that was in that room that night. Right. And I know a lot of uh, people, when they make their pilgrimage to Liverpool, uh, they do hit, hit up uh, Litherland. And uh, I would like to at some point. Um, I think it's out in the world, which is a little bit outside of the city center. But it's such a yeah, it's such an important and overlooked venue in the Beatles history. That was I feel like that was the start that year. That incredible year laid an amazing groundwork for what we came to know as the Beatles. It's crazy because people often talk about the Beatles like they as a band packed so much into a decade like they went through how many transitions of their looks through music they you know revolutionized culture like in 10 years which is not that long I mean 10 years goes by like that 
And in one year, they started the the year as a band recording simple tracks in like Paul's bathroom, as you said. And they go and, and create this like frenzy at the end that's going to snowball into 61 where a lot changes. And then obviously 62, 63, it's pretty phenomenal. They were always just like pouncing on the next thing. And I think that that momentum is amazing. And think about like what did 1960 establish for them? I mean, it was it established their haircut and their style. Mm, yeah. Even even though they got out of the leather, that beetle bowl cut was, you know, a remnant of what they did, what Astrid did for them in Germany. And I mean, I would say that probably the attraction of the boys in leather was one of the main attractions when Brian saw their look, even though he changed it. That that is certainly a, a shock to the system, I would imagine. Oh, definitely. And they built up a huge repertoire of songs out of necessity because they couldn't just keep doing the same 20 minute set if they had an eight hour show every night. So they did their covers, they worked on these originals, many of which made their way into Beatles albums, or, you know, they're just inspiration for their own songs. I mean, if you look at something like Long Tall Sally, now, of course, it's slipping my mind. What is the song that he did? What do you mean? I'm Down? Yes. So if you look at Long Tall Sally... I got it. Yeah, you got it immediately. (laughs) I'm Down is... That song would not have been written had Paul not been so immersed in this music that he loves so much and doing all of these covers. And let's not forget, this is where they first, like, really found out about the druggies and the prellies and how, what an effect those had on the life of a performer, especially when you're being, you're pushing your body to the limit, performing so long and for, you know, so many nights at one time. And whatever your opinion is on drugs, it can't be denied that the Beatles used drugs to their advantage musically, whether it was the speed or whether it was weed or whether it was psychedelics later on. I mean, they they did. And this was the first time they ever did. Plus, they made so many connections. You know, they they first encountered, I mean, really kind of in close quarters with Ringo. They had obviously seen him around the scene in Liverpool. But when you're thrown together in a foreign country playing all these shows... It's like you really get to kind of like bond with people and, you know, it's almost like being in war together. And also just randomly, what an odd thing that in 1960, 15, 16 ish years after World War Two, that England was sending all of these musical acts over to Germany. It's a strange, Ah, it's a strange thing. And I'm sure that it really, I'm sure it really tickled John's sense of humor because he always loved Nazi jokes. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) So I think he did enjoy it. He would he would stomp around calling them, you know, fucking Nazis in, in English and they couldn't understand and everything and doing the Hitler walk and goose steps and the mustache and everything. So I'm sure that he did enjoy that quite a bit. Oh, my God, John. What are we going to do with you, naughty boy? <laughs> I know. My God. But, yeah, I mean, guys, 1960, a lot more than we thought it was going to be. Yeah, and this is just the tip of the expert. 1960 was a was a great, crazy year, so... I would advise anybody who's interested in early Beatles, don't skip 1960 because it's really, really formative. Absolutely. And we'll probably touch on Ham- Hamburg a lot, you know, in this podcast. And it was so important to them. But, you know, really, I'm so excited that we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of things. It's, yeah, it's much less depressing than talking about the breakup right now. <laughs> yeah, the early Beatle time is so interesting i mean not only because of the speed and pace at which they went at such a young age but also just the optimism and the kismet and the ridiculously impossible things that happened to make this story happen happened for the most part in this five-year period between 1957 and 1962 yeah moving on to as we do every episode, talking about our latest Beatles obsession. So, Erica, what are you obsessed with? Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd mentioned this, but I really like Paul McCartney. Um, oh, really? Yeah, like, I really like yeah. him. And actually, I really, really like his solo stuff. Like, I feel like... Um, no way. So, yeah, I know. There's so much there. There's so many deep cuts. And Paul McCartney brought back a feature on his website that uh, they had last year and they kind of let it trail off. It's called Sticking Out of My Back Pocket. And what it is is a, a short playlist they put on Spotify of a mix of popular Paul McCartney songs and really deep cuts around a theme. So it popped back up a couple of days ago and I was super excited because I missed them. 
And this month for January, they did, uh, they're focusing on new beginnings themes. So it's uh, just like a half an hour playlist of stuff that everybody knows, like, you know, coming up and, you know, I don't know, uh, things that I I know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, things that are very popular to me, like new and ever present past, but also some like really, really deep cuts. Like um, one of my favorites is Sing the Changes, the Fireman. From his Fireman album. Oh, it came out like 2009. (laughs) It's one of my favorite Paul McCartney songs of all time. Like, Ram On. Oh my gosh. How random is that? Like, Great Day, Every Night. Like, this is just a really good, nicely curated playlist. And I think it's a great way to learn about, like, to experience some of his deeper cuts. Um, like a couple of years ago, I think in 2016, he, do you remember that album that they put out, Pure McCartney? I do, yeah. And it was like a three or four disc compilation, with this huge like greatest hits. And it was sort of the same thing. Like it was a it was a combination of like radio hits plus deeper cuts, but it was super long. It was like 65 songs or something. And that's not really manageable. You know, and this, yeah. I like this because it's manageable. It's really well done as far as the curation is going. It's nice that it's a theme. So I would totally recommend checking out Sticking Out of My Back Pocket. You can find it on all of the playlists on Spotify. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. And let me just say, it makes me very heart glad that he, by doing these playlists and digging out some of the stuff you might not hear all the time, he's like acknowledging what I feel are neglected albums like Off the Ground, which I love, mm-hmm. and uh, Driving Rain, which I will defend and I will defend on this podcast. But, you know, like these albums that he's forced to kind of like mine for these themes, like, yes, Paul, acknowledge Off the Ground. Like, we want you to play shit from that album on tour, please. Like, yes, we do. Hope of Deliverance, whatever. I don't care. Just I mean, you know, I, I, I could definitely tell you what tracks, but whatever, just play something <laughs> from off the ground. So it's cool because, you know, a lot of people might not have been exposed to off the ground before. Yeah. So maybe a track, you know, on one of these playlists will get them to listen to it. Can I just say, and I'm going to put this out in the universe because I've always wanted Paul to do this. How awesome would it be if Paul did a deep cuts concert but not a live concert because we all know people aren't going to go but like a web stream concert that like you can oh my god you know some kind of like exclusive thing but it's all deep cuts and like super obsessed fans can kind of like you know vote on things and write stuff in and he'll do like a nice long concert with all the stuff that he never (sighs) does in the big arena shows and we could live stream it we could watch it on our nice big tvs and like together at like watching parties <laughs> this is my dream oh my god this is amazing paul we know you listen to us obviously so make this happen if anybody please. from mpl is out there please do it please i do know it. really oh my gosh and honestly like i would pay like buku bucks to go to a show like that exactly i um, would pay a good amount to just stream a show like that totally <laughs> i'd also pay a good amount for him not to do things like magical mystery tour again on his sets like can i pay for that <laughs> Can I pay for him to get rid of some of this shit? Anyway, sorry. That's a topic I'm... <laughs> for another entire episode. I know. And once he comes I back know. on tour, we're hitting it. Yes. Okay, great. I love it. <laughs> Let's do that. So on to something else that's not Paul. Allison, what are you obsessed with this week? How do you know it's not Paul? It could be Paul. It could be Paul. It I mean, could be Paul. Everything is really about Paul underneath it. But I'm just going to expect that you're not obsessing over the sticking out of my back pocket playlist. I'm not. I did see he posted it, but I hadn't checked it out yet. But I'm glad you mentioned it because I it reminded me that I have to, to listen to it. But so I have two. One, shout out to Erica. She got me the most kick-ass freaking Christmas present. Oh, that's me. Um, that's you. It you. Uh, she, as we talked about, went to the Beatles pop-up store in New York. Is that still around or is that gone now? No, it ended December 22nd. Oh, that sucks. But anyway, she got me this awesome 45 case. And number one, I needed a 45 case really bad. So the universe must have like told you. But it's it's so well made. And it's got like photos of like the Beatles singles and like Beatles pictures like on the front. And it looks very vintage. Yeah. So I currently have it uh, on display in my living room. And I just love it so Aww. much. Thank you, Erica. I love it. Oh, it was great. Seems like something that would be so you. Oh, yeah. Wonderful to come home to after being away for the holidays. It was lovely. Yay. I'm so glad you like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. 
Um, and then my second thing, which only happened yesterday. So I was having some drinks because this weekend, probably by the time this goes up, it'll be over. So you guys can uh, know the results of this. But the Grammys are happening. And uh, we're up for a couple here at work for our Woodstock box. I'm so nervous. So we were having um, some drinkies yesterday uh, with the producers who were nominated. And so I was talking to one of their wives. And she is the best. She's super cool. Um, but she was talking about how she saw the Beatles when they were, I think it was 60, I don't know, 64 or 66, but they played in Detroit and she and her teenage babysitter went and they got these seats that were right by the tunnel where the Beatles sort of came out. They were playing in the arena there. So they obviously were super close to the Beatles when they came out, but she said that she looked down at one point and saw a guy in like a checkered shirt and she reached down and like touched him. And Erica, it was Brian. Oh, my God. She touched Brian. But here's where it gets crazier. Before she even did that, she knew it was Brian because she knew he wore, like, checkered shirts like that. And she had, like, a weird Brian obsession. And I was like, excuse me. Oh, my God. You met a soulmate. We need to talk. I know. I'm like, oh, my God. So we were sitting at drinks. And totally after she had told me this, like, it was a couple hours later. And... We were talking about my cat, and I was showing her pictures of, of my cat and stuff. And she's like, oh, what's his name? And I said, Epi, you know, after Brian upside. And I was like, oh, shit. And, like, we just pointed at each other. I'm like, see? And, you know, we just had a moment where we're like, oh, my God. We're both, like, crazy about Brian. Aww. But it was so nice. I, like, never meet people like that. They're usually like, okay, you like Brian. That's weird, you know? So uh, <laughs> that was really lovely. Aww. Yeah, that was, it was a really nice moment. Yeah, I loved it. Yay. Well, new new Brian friend. Here's new Brian friend. I know. Yay. I know. I love it. So yay. Yay. Hooray. Well, I think that's it for today. So uh, thanks for listening to BC the Beatles. And as always, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Yes, and please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Don't forget, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Tweet at us, DM us, whatever. And, you know, we might feature your response here on the show. And until next time, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.